Hello and welcome to episode 117 of Below the Fold, where some of the best content is just a scroll away. Today's conversation, psychological biases that may affect your digital marketing strategies. Let me throw down some introductions. We've got Nate Birch in the studio, SEO manager at MapR Technologies. That's me. Brandon Hassler, founder and CEO of Market Campus. What's up, my man? <laughs> and Paxton Gray, dir- <laughs> director of marketing operations at 97th Floor. Hey. And I am Jacob Perry, digital marketing manager at Myriad Genetics. Before we get started, let me mention this episode's sponsor. It's Self-Publishing University. They are the go-to resource for learning how to successfully publish and profit. They offer a step-by-step resource that covers the entire publishing process from beginning to end, and they're great for beginners and seasoned professionals. All right, guys, there were some of you who are a little hesitant on this topic. I think it goes a little bit deeper than you're used to. I'm looking at Brandon. Psychological biases. I suggested this because I found an article that I thought was really interesting, and that's. I think that was the title of it. Let me pull this up real quick. So the article was written on digitalmarketinginstitute.com and it was written just over a year ago and, and it's titled three psychological biases. Is it biases or biases? I don't know. Biases that can make or break your online marketing. Yeah. And there are just three that were mentioned. And I thought this was really interesting because each one of these, I thought of specific examples in my experience as a digital marketer where I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Let's, uh, Maybe this will help someone else. So I want to open this up. I'm, I'm just going to read the first paragraph here and then throw it out there to ask whether or not you guys agree with this thesis or this, uh, this beginning statement. Here's what it says. What's behind the decisions your customers make to click, buy, and share? According to the advertised mind, neuromarketing is the root of why people make decisions. Quote, our unconscious mind, not our conscious mind, drives how we respond to ads brands and products and ultimately drives us excuse me drives all our buying decisions customers don't really know why they buy what they buy which is why traditional market research falls short so my first question is neuromarketing right so we're talking about this scientific explanation for why consumers are buying specific things are those, is that something you guys keep in mind as you market your products or market for your clients? Honest, it's not something that I go too deep into. I do try to keep in mind the psychology of what like user intent behind certain phrases for SEO, uh, what people are likely to share on social media, and I try to get behind the eyes of my target audience. But as far as psychoanalyzing people and why they make decisions that they themselves are not even aware of. I will say I, I don't get that deep into it. And it's mainly from a lack of resources and time dedicating to, to that kind of thought process. But if you had the resources and the time, do, do you, would you see the benefit in maybe oh. like even hiring a psychologist to come in and give you the psychological makeup of your specific audience? Honestly, like absolutely. I think that that's kind of the secret sauce of any evil marketer out there to hmm. get people to do what they don't they themselves might not even want to do but will do just because you understand how their brains work and they don't it's a very powerful tool and it's where marketing is going so the better you can understand it and the better you can use it to your advantage the more you're going to make 
Because I mean, it, isn't marketing just a synonym for manipulating? Yeah, you could argue that. Sure. But one thing I would like to see in, and I think America, I don't know about the rest of the world, is kind of going this way, is this real trend towards mindfulness and really understanding why am I doing what I'm doing? Why do I think the thoughts that I think instead of just having a knee-jerk reaction going with it? So you see the rise of apps that make you, they record how often you use your phone. And those are getting more and more popular. People like to see how many times do I look at my phone? How often do I use my phone? And the reason that it's getting more popular is because people like taking control of their actions and they want to take that back where it's been kind of taken from them by these people who understand why they do uh, what they do and the users themselves don't. So hopefully I'd like to see America get to a spot where those powers are taken from the marketers to the extent that they have them now. But I think that's kind of a pipe dream. That's not really going to happen. People are going to continue to be manipulated into doing things that they might not otherwise do if they were completely aware of what their brains were doing at that moment. So Brandon, coming over to you, is this something that one, you think is important for a marketer to know or understand if they have the resources? Is this something that you could see yourself doing or using in your own promotion or marketing for Market Campus? Where do you stand as far as neuromarketing and understanding the psychology of your target audience? So I do agree with that opening paragraph that you read um, about basically how our unconscious mind is making the decisions. I mean, the best time to market to someone is when they don't know they're being marketed to um, because they're not in defense mode. When we see a commercial where we're immediately analyzing, we're making a decision, is this for me? Is this a waste of my time to watch? Uh, whereas when it's not posed as an advertisement, when it's just there, it's very natural. That is the best way. I'm, I'm thinking of all the products that I've been considering buying lately and the companies that I'm buying from have never run an ad in front of me. Yeah, I've seen their logo in videos. I've seen people talk about it just very naturally. And so I start thinking, well, maybe I should buy one of these things. Like, And it's just very interesting because I was really being marketed to, whether it was intentional or not, there's a lot of power in that. And what I love about human psychology is it evolves extremely slow compared to how digital marketing evolves. And so you think about all the resources that we put into hiring teams to stay on top of Google's algorithms and, and the changes and, and the new social platforms. If we took that same effort and put it into studying the human mind, how we react, what we like, what we don't like, it's a little bit more risky up front, which is why a lot of people don't do it because you've got paying clients. If you're an agency and it's like, hey, we're going to take two months and figure out human psychology and hopefully this will pay off. But yeah, I do agree that I think psychology, I've always been fascinated with psychology and meeting a marketer who has a marketing degree and maybe a, an, a, you know, an emphasis in psychology. I think that's a huge advantage in the marketing world. So what about you, Nate? Where do you stand as far as neuromarketing and the biases that people might have, how they interact with your brand? I, I believe it has a very strong place, actually. I think the core of marketing is psychology. You have to know how people are going to react. And uh, as we're talking about biases, I, I remember actually a... Uh, a test that Facebook did with, I think it was 700,000 of their users. And they tried to, through their newsfeed and through different, uh, different features that they have on the platform, they tried to see if they could modify the, the emotion or the, or, or the feeling of the, those 700,000 people. And 
scary part is they found it very effective. The second part of that was they had a lot of uh, they had a lot of negative reaction to it because people don't like being messed with. They don't like people messing with it, but I think that comes down to when they realize that they're being messed with. And there are a lot of different biases that go into it, but when you get down to the psychology of it, I believe it has the most effect on platforms of scale. So, for example, Facebook can play with this. For example, imagine you had uh, some type of uh, Internet of Things device that is able to, to feed back into the Internet what your current emotional state is. Do you realize how easy it would be to market people? To realize that I can market them through, for example, through fear. Well, I'm pretty sure Facebook just filed a patent for that. It's either Facebook or Google. I can't remember who. Would not be surprised. The patent is that they use your webcam to look at your face and they can analyze your face to pick predict your emotion. I would not be surprised in the Like results will change based on whatever emotion they detect. And you, if, you, if you think about all the little different points of data that we give, for example, the, the device that's sitting in your pocket is recording exactly where you are, how long you're there. Every single browser that you have is recording where you hover on a page, what content you see, what ads you see. If you were to be able to combine all of that into one huge data set, can you imagine the power that that one, that, that all those pieces combined together give you the ability to do? It's it can be kind of the freaky circumstance of, okay, this person knows exactly what, uh, how I can manipulate them. So is that something that you allow your, t- your devices to do, Nate? Or do you turn off all your, loca- your location services? Yeah, I disable them, do? yes. But the fact of it is, if I have my, my battery in my iPhone, so I've got an old iPhone 4S. The fact that I have my battery in there says that uh, government with the, uh, with get it the right piece of paper, or if they have, if they decide they want to, they can jump in and, and enable it. They can enable my phone. They can enable my camcord, my camera. They can enable my microphone. Right. I mean, this is getting into a weird place. <laughs> sure, that we sure, probably sure. didn't mean to. But as far as <laughs> psychological biases, yes, there is huge, huge power to it. I want to come back to this article that outlines three specific biases that exist within marketing. There are probably a ton more. But the first one on the list is the halo effect. And I just want to I want to kind of define what the halo effect is and then uh, describe what the problem is for marketers. And then we can talk about maybe the solutions that we may come up with for this specific bias. The halo effect is a cognitive bias that influences our overall impression of person or brand based on a previous experience we've had with them. Okay, for example, if a person is physically attractive and outgoing they can also be seen as funny, intelligent, and kind, even if that's not the case, mm-hmm. right? So this one attribute of this company or this person that is good may lead us to believe other things that we just don't know, sure. okay? And the problem with this is that uh, I'm just, I'm reading directly from this article. Once a customer has formed an initial impression of your brand, be it Market Campus, Nice Up Floor, any one of your clients, MapR, Myriad Genetics, once they have their initial impression of that brand, all of their future impressions could be influenced by it. And I was just having a conversation with someone about this. I think it might have been this morning, actually. How hard is it for somebody to change their opinion of a specific brand if it, at first it was negative? And then on the other side of that coin, 
if the first impression you have of a brand is good, what does it take to turn that around or diminish that first impression? Any thoughts? I thought it was about a 10 to 1 where you have, if a person had a bad experience with a company or a product, they're going to tell 10 people about their negative experience. Whereas 10 people that have had a really good experience with it, maybe one of those will write a review or something like that. Negative has a lot of strength. I think this goes beyond just like an experience with the product necessarily. I think what you're thinking or referring to is like I buy a product and I don't like that product. I think this starts well before that. Even looking at a company's logo, that's that's where the experience begins. One thing that comes to mind as Jacob was talking about that is the huge rise of these hipster brands where they do one thing and they you know, claim to do it really well. I'm not saying they don't or whatever. They, that just, that's their thing is they make artisan leather wallets and they're handcrafted by this guy with a big long beard and he's out in the woods somewhere in a cabin and that's where he makes these handmade leather wallets or whatever. That feeling is something that really resonates with people for some reason and that's where their experience of the brand begins. So the wallet itself could be a, kind of a crappy wallet but because they're opinion of the brand has been influenced by that branding and that story that's been told they might believe that that wallet or even feel that that wallet is a really good wallet even in reality it's not so that's the halo effect in play even before they lay their hands on the product they've already formed an opinion of what that product is going to be like so let me throw out an example this this example comes from mac world as they were analyzing the halo effect that the ipod had when that first came out So basically the article is talking about how when the iPod came out, when was that? 2001 or something like that. The iPod is what saved Apple. This Mm -hmm. is, this is my, this doesn't come from the the article. This is me. The iPod saved Apple in that people who were buying the iPod, most of them had never experienced using an Apple product before that. So the iPod was their first initial impression or of a product coming from that that company and what happened was it was right around that time that apple started to tout or brag that around 50 percent of their Macs sold in retail stores were from new customers Mm -hmm. and that that's coming from the halo effect where these people who bought the ipod were so impressed and loved the product so much that they were willing to leave the pc world or the Macintosh, or excuse me, the Windows and uh, Microsoft world to go to Apple. And it's because of their initial impression of the first product they used, which was yeah. the iPod. Well, let me... Yeah, go ahead. Can I tell a story? So uh, my experience with Apple, I used to hate Apple so much. I worked for CompUSA uh, back when CompUSA was a thing. And anyone that was going over to the Apple section, I would be like, hey, actually, you should check out these Sonys. It's better than the Apples. And I would just like... I hated them so much I would prevent, try to prevent other people from buying Apple products. Then high school rolls around and I'm... Wait, what year was that? Boy, I don't remember. Uh, early 2000s? Yeah, early 2000s. Back when Apple wasn't really that cool anyway. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> so I was super into music and I was at the time using the Windows Media Player, and which I thought at the time sucked. I downloaded iTunes for the first time and it just like completely appealed to my OCD nature. I was able to get in lyrics for every single track and organize it in what I thought was a very intuitive and very useful platform. And I started to think, man, if Apple designed this iTunes program, 
what else do they design? They mu- everything else must be as organized and clean and intuitive as this program. And I bought an, an iPod because if if iTunes is good, iPod must be good. And I thought iPod was good. And I was like, if that's good, then I'm going to switch. And I switched to a Mac and now I'm a huge Mac guy. I have everything that they make. So yeah. what got you to change then to actually download iTunes? Because you had to get over some type of, you had to get over the negative bias with Apple in the first place. That's what I'm saying. So the, I thought the mini, Windows Media Player sucked in okay, terms so of organization. A bad product pushed you into its alternative. Right. Gotcha. Great. Perfect example. And we're going to move on to the next bias because I think that that one is pretty clear now. The next bias on this uh, in this article is belief bias. Belief bias means that people are quick to reject conclusions because they sound extreme outrageous and downright unbelievable. I like this one because my example is pretty funny and it comes from Market Campus. I was just talking to Brandon about this, which is good because I'm going to pull him into this conversation. He just recently came out with a video. What's the title of your latest video? The Uh, YouTube one. I think it's the world's greatest digital marketing course ever. No, 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 not that one. (laughs) Although that that one might fall into this. No, the YouTube one, the 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 whiteboard whiteboard video. Yeah, it was something. The title I chose for the video was "How to Make 120,000 Plus Per Year Through Email Leads" or something like that. Yeah. Oh, so it wasn't YouTube; it was through email. That's right. No, yeah, it, it was posted on YouTube, but it was about email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm glad you clarified that. So yesterday, Brandon asked me, "Hey, man, did you watch that video?" And I said, "No." It felt like it was some MLM <laughs> scheme or no, some Ponzi <laughs> scheme, and I was like, "No, it just sounds." Anyway, at the time, I didn't make the connection, but. Since then, after reading this article, I'm like, oh, that's total belief bias in that the language that you used made it sound extreme, outrageous, and downright unbelievable. And at that point, I passed because I was like, this is just too good to be true mentality. Mm -hmm. That's the belief bias. And the problem, as it states in the article, is your customers might not believe an impressive claim you you make on your landing page, even if it's true and backed up by facts. So even if the video describes step-by-step, and if you follow it exactly like this, you'll make $120,000 a year through email, it doesn't matter because it's just too unbelievable. The same thing happened when Facebook, Facebook a few years ago, it was, it was the cool thing to do contests, right? And people were giving away these extravagant prizes. And I think at the time, what, what were the time? Um, iPads, I think, were the biggest, the biggest thing, like when contests were, everyone were, was giving out iPads. And tons and tons and tons of people were passing on that because it was too expensive. They, the thought, more, they, they thought they could never win because the prize is so good. There's no chance I could ever win that. Yeah. And then it was found later that if you just lower the cost of the prize, even to $50, more people are likely to enter the contest. Yeah. So you started to see more and more people stop giving away iPads, save money on the, uh, with their budgets, and just give away $50 Amazon gift cards. Tupperware. Tupperware. I never saw that, but I'd like some Tupperware. This actually reminds me of the uh, the Lucky Golden brand story. Because Lucky Golden, if you know that the brand now, it's LG. They had a superior product, and they had a lower price than their, than their competition. And because of that price point, the people did not believe that the quality was actually on par with, with even their competition. So the story was that Sony was just kicking their butt, and they would charge twice the amount for a product that was the exact same. That was either exactly. the exact same or inferior. Right. Exactly. So and they so, told them to rebrand to LG and start charging double the price. Yep. And it worked. It, exactly. So the problem is that your customers, you need you need the right language. And Brandon had mentioned, yeah, maybe maybe I should change the title so it's a hundred thousand instead of hundred and twenty. 
It yeah, might have been was, for a different reason. That was purely for search because no one searches how do I make one hundred twenty thousand a year, but people do search how do I make one hundred thousand a year. Interesting. So uh, I was just it was my test. It was a cheesy title, but it was an interesting. <laughs> yeah. Interesting study. So the solution, and then I'm just going to run past the the last bias. The solution for marketers for belief bias. On some occasions, it might be better to make a statement sound more realistic rather than trying to back up your argument with more information, right? So it's changing the language, not necessarily trying to shove the facts down their throat that, hey, yeah, no, this is true. You really can make $120,000 through email. Uh, Second suggestion, try creating testimonials so that other customers are backing it up rather than numbers and statistics and facts, putting a face to those testimonials. And then the last little suggestion your customer's gut reaction often holds a powerful influence on their purchasing decision. When writing copy, try and appeal to their emotions rather than attempting to convince through pure logic, which I think is a, I hope that's obvious that emotional buys are way more valuable than logical buys because people who are logical are more likely to pass on, on your product. Nate could probably attest to that. He's the most logical guy I know. Okay, so any last word? There's one There's one last bias here. It's called the framing effect. I'm not really going to get into it because we're low on time. But if you go to the, if you just, you could Google this, the, the topic, three psychological biases that can make or break your online marketing. Check it out. It's it's a pretty short article. It takes just a couple minutes. But before we move on, any any last comments? Well, I just, I can, I can attest personally that the last one that you said, try to appeal to their emotions rather than pure logic. With Market Campus, for example, I mean, my own personal experience, we spent a lot of our first time, like really, you can make this much as a marketer. Uh, we can teach you this much in this little time. And to many people, the, the big feedback was that doesn't sound like there's no way I can learn all that in nine weeks. There's no way I can actually get one day a salary of that much. And, and now we're starting to focus on the emotions, how much it sucks to try to learn online, how much it sucks to try to train new entry-level employees. And so we, we're really focusing on that on those pain points that people are feeling. And we're not talking about the bells and whistles. They, they can read into that, but our first message isn't, here's what we here's, here's not our features. It's, here's what you're going through. Let us help you solve it. And we're already noticing better results. That's really funny that, that you went down that route because that's exactly the third bias, which is called the framing effect, mm-hmm. where at the beginning you were framing it in a way that you were trying to tell them about the benefits to coming to Market Campus and learning, whereas the better way to do it is to frame it in a way to help them avoid loss, right? So loss of revenue, loss of time. So instead of saying, hey, we'll, say, we'll save you so much time, you're saying, hey, by, uh, don't lose out on the time it takes to train your employee. Don't lose out on the revenue and lost whatever that's, I mean, that's basically the framing effect. So I said I wasn't going to get into it, but that's the quick little there rundown of, of the framing effect. All right. So that's, that's all the time that we have for that segment. We're going to jump into last word and I'm going to pass it over to Paxton to give his last word. And then we'll kind of go, we'll go to Brandon and Nate and then I'll, I'll kick us off uh, or I'll end this uh, show with my last word. Go ahead, Pax. I think as a marketer, it's important to understand psychological biases and how they can influence how people interact with your brand. If you can really understand that information, you have a powerful tool at your disposal. As a consumer, I would also recommend taking some time to understand psychological biases and how that affects how you interact with brands. That's it. Yeah, that could be a whole nother topic. Brandon. December 12th, 
Rand Fishkin tweeted, Facebook studies suggest folks who see your Facebook ads, even if they don't click them, may prefer your brand in the SERPs. Summing it all up, I think one of the uh, big elements in digital marketing that really affects human psychology is just branding in general. And so I think branding is becoming more and more important because it's not intrusive marketing. It, you're, you're letting people know you're there. It's, it may take them months. It may take them years. But I think of all the big purchases I've made, it was, it was years and years of brands working on me slowly. And uh, I think this is, I mean, this study did come from Facebook. So who knows? It could be completely made up. But I think there's a lot of power in branding with this topic. I mean, it is on the internet. So, I mean, there's some semblance <laughs> of believe. authority and, and trustworthiness there, Nate. Go ahead. All right. So there's, there's a lot of power in psychology. And it's been fun in my career in marketing to be able to see. I love being able to recognize when, for example, when an ad or when, when something is playing to a, a very specific topic or a very specific bias. I, I actually have a fun time being able to recognize that. That being said, my, my ultimate favorite uh, psychological bias is called the, the curse of knowledge. And uh, I made the mistake once of, of bringing it up in a meeting and everyone thought, oh, well, you just think you, uh, you know a ton, right? Curse of knowledge. You have too much knowledge. No. It, it basically says that you cannot know what it's like to not know what you currently know. So. I was about to interrupt you. Are you done? <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Oh, sorry. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I think you still had some time if you want to. I did. But I'm okay. I'm offended, Jacob. <laughs> Sorry, Nate. We'll we'll make up. If you want to hear later. more about the curse of knowledge? Email us at below the fold. There we go. That's not our email address. <laughs> I don't know. Inbound, inbound at below the fold. We need to change our email address. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't it's like hard that. to say. My last word is specific to a, a TED talk that Malcolm Gladwell gave. It's one of the most viewed TED talks to date. It has almost six million views. It's called Choice, Happiness, and Spaghetti Sauce. There's just one little section that I want to take out of there, and, and it's about the psychology of choice. It was found, let's see here, the guy's name was Howard uh, Moskowitz, and some of you may have heard of this guy. He's, he was hired by some of the biggest companies. He was hired by Pepsi to figure out what the perfect level of sweetness was, and he was hired by Prego to figure out the perfect amount of flavors that Prego should have, and I, I, I think he may have had a background in psychology. I probably shouldn't say that because I really don't know, but the psychology of choice, it's really important. I'm just going to end with this and then you guys can go to the TED talk and, and, and listen to it yourself. But basically Prego had one flavor. It was just their traditional spaghetti sauce. And after studies and research, this Howard guy, he found that people, spaghetti sauce eaters could fall within three groups. Those that like plain spaghetti, sauce, those that like chunky spaghetti sauce, and those that like spicy spaghetti sauce. What was crazy about this is prior to this research being done, nobody knew that people would be categorized in that way. People, the more choice you give them, the more opportunity you have to sell to more people. However, there's a, there's a point of diminishing report, re returns because once you get to too many choices, you get decision overload. Decision overload. Exactly. Thank you. Where People will actually, it'll have the opposite effect where if you have too many choices, people won't choose any. 
So as far as psychology goes, that's really important. If you have a ton of products, you may look into reducing the amount of products. If you don't have that many products, you may look into increasing the amount of offers that you have specific to your audience. I think that it comes back to the importance of psychology in your marketing campaigns. The more information you have about and the more insights you have about the customers or the consumers of your product or your service or whatever it is, the more insights you can have into making like Pepsi wanted the perfect amount of sweetness in your product or service. That's all we got. Go to iTunes, leave us a review. If it's not a five-star review, leave us a four-star review. If it's not a four-star review, then just move on. If you want to come to our website, belowthefold.io, if you want to email us, inbound at belowthefold.io. 